I'm Noah. And I'm Ben. And you're listening to Product Journey. So hey Noah, how's it going? It's going good, Ben. How are you? Um doing pretty good. Um <laughs> t- take two on this. So Arvid, how are you? How are you hey, doing? how's it going? Hi, I'm great. How are you? Um, so today, as you just heard, we're joined by Arvid Karl, who is the co-founder of Feedback Panda, um, which has been sold to SureSwift Capital last year. Um, and Arvid recently turned to some kind of <laughs> teaching figure for bootstrapped uh, SaaS founders and um, is giving out a lot of useful advice in the form of articles, newsletters, and recently started a podcast um, called The Bootstrap Founder. Um, and yeah, Arvid, we're glad to have you. <laughs> well, th- thanks so much. And also thank you for calling what I'm doing useful because it says really nice <laughs> to, to hear. I do get a lot of positive feedback, but you know, like Twitter is full of uh, positive reinforcement that sometimes it's a bit too much. So I'm quite happy to hear you guys who are in the, the middle of things, finding some value Yeah, uh, from what I'm writing. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, yeah, just going on off that, like, I think it's definitely useful what you're doing and kind of like what you mentioned before, like you're, you know, you're just putting the things out there that you've learned and, you know, you're not, you know, you're not, uh, yeah, basically you're just trying to give back and that's, that's awesome. Um, and that's very appreciative to have people like you in the community of bootstrappers that we can all kind of learn from and just kind of look at your story and how, how things worked out for you that I think it's really helpful, very useful. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm happy to hear that, obviously. And uh, it's it's still like, it's, it's the weirdest thing. Like every single day in the life of an entrepreneur, like even if you sell your business, is still full of imposter syndrome of some level. It's the craziest <laughs> thing. Like now that I've actually sold a business and it was a successful business, so I've done this. It's not that I'm just imagining yeah. it, but it still feels like, should I be the one talking about this? It's the weirdest <laughs> thing. Like it's, it's, it's very strange. You, you're in a completely different situation situation financially and from the the kinds of experience you have and all these things and you still have all these problems that are fake they're just like they're they're first world problems but Mm. you are in the first world and they are real problems it's super weird so saying this just hearing this makes me super happy (laughs) because it kind of (laughs) validates and i've been thinking a lot of validation in the past having having written lots about it over the last couple weeks some validation is always required no matter what you do like even if you do this for years, you still need somebody to kind of give you some feedback that you're actually doing the right mm-hmm. thing. So yeah. thanks for that. Yeah, I mean, I can see that like with the, the imposter syndrome, like I'm sure you you can, it's so easy to think like, well, I've done it once, you know, in your case, but maybe I was, maybe it was a fluke. Like maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm just one data point. I got lucky or like, do I really know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? <laughs> no, I try to avoid like stating things in a factual way like you should do this and then this happens first of it never mm-hmm. does right it didn't even when we <laughs> tried it the first time it just happened at some point right that these all these things that are learnings are the anecdotal they are they're just based on the evidence that we had in the reality that happened to our business it could have gone any other way if we had done the thing that we did successfully a couple days before might not have worked right all these kind of things where you do marketing efforts where you buy ads and then there's like all these these little random events that happen that turn out to have a big impact on your business you never know if it's really the thing you did or if it's just lucky happenstance and the thing you did like where the connection Mm -hmm. is then again 
if you do this a couple times, and I've done this a couple times, this is the first time it's been really super successful, but I've been part of a lot of software businesses, a lot of startups before, right? I've been doing this since, I guess, 2005 or something like that. So in, in 15 years, being both in startups, small startups, being in venture capital startups, being in German companies that call themselves <laughs> startups, but as they're German, it's <laughs> more like a bureaucracy of stuff. It's really hilarious, but th there's a lot of different things you can do as an engineer that teach you m many different things and you learn lots of different kinds of approaches and it just culminated in what Feedback Panda was in the end, right? It's just kind of overnight success years in the making. And I think that's that's important yeah. to, to know that all the stuff I'm writing about comes not just from Feedback Panda, but also from the failed experiments before. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, I will say, you know, you kind of mentioned like overnight success. Um, it definitely like it sounds like it is like almost like the perfect story. Like, <laughs> like everything went so well. <laughs> and obviously, you know, I'm sure that isn't completely true. There's always mistakes and things. But like, yeah, definitely for those listening, go check out I think it was like your first episode or second episode of your podcast. Mm -hmm. You kind of explain the whole story of how it happened with Feedback Panda. And it really is a pretty remarkable story that, I don't know, to me, it just like, it seemed like you saw an opportunity and then like you just went out and captured it and just executed on it. Seemed like, you know, so well. And, you know, in two years, you got a, a company to 55K MRR and then sold it. Like, that was quick. <laughs> yeah, that was super quick. Um, Absolutely. So I don't know. Yeah, I guess what what were your are your kind of thoughts on just that journey, like through the two, those two years? Like, how do you feel about it? Like, do you mm. feel like it was like you just ran into something, or like, yeah, what are your kind of thoughts? Like, was it a perfect? Like, yeah. There are so many potential cognitive biases that I'm trying to avoid just now. Like there's all, all <laughs> yeah. these kind of things that I could tell you, oh, I knew from the beginning or it is totally random. Yeah, I, I think it's it's kind of hard to think about this from my perspective, to be honest, because I was in the middle of it. So everything I did worked out. So now I could just think, well, I did the right things, right? Which mm -hmm. may be a, a limited perspective, but um, what I know, what was different uh, compared to the other things this time is that we went with the audience first. That is the, the first time I've ever really done this in a startup and everything else fell into place. Like we looked at who can we help? That was the central question of what Danielle and I started with because she was part of a group of people that had a problem and people who have a problem need help, right? So we just kind of looked at it like, who are these people? Who are online teachers? That was the market that our um, business was in. Who are online English teachers? Like, what kind of group are they? And is this a group that is niche enough for a small business like we would want to uh, found at that point to actually support um, both the group, um, the business supporting the group and the group supporting the business in terms of size of the market and these kind of things. So we started with that. We looked into these people. We looked, we found a very homogenous group of people that were hanging out at the same kind of places. It was quite large for a very small niche. I think if we really defined the niche that we went in, it was like North American online English teachers who work from home, who teach for Chinese kid English schools that um, refer native English speakers to Chinese children. That was the niche, right? A super specific <laughs> niche. But usually if it's so specific, it's very small. At that point, though, 
it was 10,000 teachers already existing for one, the biggest company in that space in China. So this Chinese company would mm-hmm. recruit all these American teachers, uh, or not even teachers, just Americans who had a bachelor's degree and wanted to teach online. They didn't even need to be a teacher to be able to do this, which is why Danielle did it because she had a, um, a leg injury, which kept her from leaving our apartment. And she's a trained opera singer and the trained opera singer won't sing in an apartment, right? Th- this kind of stuff just really fell into place. So she found this English teaching job and then she noticed that there was a group of people that had a problem. We took it from there. Yeah. So it all it's, happened um, by chance, basically. <laughs> the, and at least, she, at least the initial spark, yeah. The, the kind of getting into the market. Yeah, yeah. Um, Danielle kind of randomly walked in there and then the entrepreneurial stuff started. We noticed that yeah, there was a problem. We know that, that that's the whole thing. I've been thinking about this recently. Like, how can you actually find those niches if you don't know, right? If you don't know that there is, I don't know, uh, plumbers need a CRM for yeah, yeah. their kind of uh, the people that they serve or what do nurses need, right? These kind of things you'd never know if you're not a plumber or a nurse. And if you're not yeah, an English right. online teacher, you won't find the English online teaching niche unless, and that's, I think, is the kicker, you find somebody who is in that niche. And um, I'm currently thinking of if there is a framework you can actually use in this case to detect this stuff around you. And it kind of boils down to talking to people like everything in, in startups boils down to talking to people. I feel right. It's you know, if you sit at home and just do your thing, you'll never get anywhere. You have to talk to your customers for validation. You have to talk to partners for opportunities for growth. You have to talk to your family and your friends to find niches. And that's the point where they see problems that you don't see, but they're the expert. So you can kind of use them, find like use them to, to have a peek into the niche. And yeah, yeah. That's, that's the hardest part is like finding the audience, which is why I think we as developer founders, and I count myself as one of them, engineers, we go for the product first. We go for the big idea because we know mm-hmm. that's something we know. We know how to product. We know how to build, right? That That's the stuff we are, we are super aware of. Finding groups of people. In some ways, that's the part. easy part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that is that is the easy part because that's what we not only what we do, it's also what we've been trained to do. We've never been trained to look for opportunities and markets as developers. Mm-hmm. We look we look for like uh, complexity in algorithms and to reduce it. That's what we do, right? We find solutions to challenges, but not to see people find a common theme and solve their problems. And and that is hard, I guess, if you start out as a solopreneur, if you start out as a technical mm-hmm. founder for your own business, to, to to switch to that. And it took me years to even understand that this is necessary. Because <laughs> as a developer, like I write code and I can solve anything. Yeah, most things. But sol- <laughs> solving the problem of me not knowing that I have to look for people, that's super hard. Yeah, like it sounds like there's a, a bit of like right place, right time. And how can you optimize that other than, you know, talking to people, getting out there, starting to do things where you're going to see problems come around you and people that need help with it. It seems like with Feedback Panda, in some ways, this is almost like a new niche, right? Like these these um, Chinese companies that mainly it sounds like that are, are doing this this teaching for learning English and stuff is a pretty new thing, right? Mm-hmm. So do you think that is definitely like you kind of found that early on before maybe more pe- others did? It definitely helped that it was a rather new way of doing 
a thing that people have always been doing. So you you could question if uh, teaching is an, is a niche, right? But online English teaching uh-huh. through web-based portals by Chinese companies, yeah, definitely a new one because that only started I guess a year before Danielle started working for uh, one of these companies. So it was a rather new thing. Also brought on, of course, by uh, broadband um, infrastructure uh, being established in China, having their technology leveling up. So all of a sudden, all these Chinese cities were connected and more easily connected to the West. So, yeah, we rode a wave, obviously. And it was uh, lucky for us to be there. I guess, early enough to understand that this was going to grow. And I was saying this, right? We had 10,000 teachers when we started that we knew were our target audience. A year in, it was 20,000. And when we sold, it was 75. Like, that's the kind of hockey stick growth that we so hate to see in bootstrapping, but love to see in the markets (laughs) that we serve, right? It's it's this kind (laughs) of... We we saw that, and in, in the beginning, it was clear, okay, now in China these companies are really getting like hundreds of millions of dollars of funding to build the education technology of the future. If we can just latch onto this, whatever happens, we're going to grow. So finding a market that has that trajectory, I think that is, that was the lucky part, but understanding that it is that, and then understanding how to talk to these people and actually provide them with the product, that would be the skill. It's always this combination of skill and experience and the lucky part. That's what I'm saying with cognitive bias, because obviously I could attribute all of this to my ingenious understanding of the world, but it it really isn't, right? There's a lot of right thing at the right time, and then we executed on it. Yeah, so maybe we can follow that a little bit more, because it seems like you you kind of stumbled into that niche and you actually realized, hey, there is something there. and what happens next is basically validating that, um, mm. <laughs> like knowing that it will work. Um, so kind of interested. How did you do that? Oh, yeah, validation. That is uh, always super enjoyable. I've been uh, thinking <laughs> about this so much and people really don't like it. So it's one of these things. And I, you've been talking about this in prior episodes. You've come to understand that it's required, right? You've come to um, do experiments and, and validate and then see if people need it, if people are interested and then go for it, which is already a step way ahead of many founders who think their idea is great. And the validation is that they think their idea is great. So <laughs> we validated by, by me building the thing for Danielle. It's pretty much what we did. I built a prototype, a really, really crude MVP that had just a basic function, like really basic function. It was a templating engine because Danielle needed to template student feedback. That was all that Feedback Panda did during the lifetime of the product was to provide an easy way to manage your students and to write feedback for them, for their parents to read quickly. That was all. That was the whole point of the product because that was the part that took teachers hours a day and they didn't get paid for it. But if they didn't do it, they wouldn't get paid at all. So it was really crucial. It was a critical problem that they had uh, amidst of many other problems that we completely ignored. That's also important. But we, we validated it by me building it for Danielle. She started using it. She found out that what took her two hours is, was now five minutes altogether. And that was all the validation that I needed in the beginning to then start to actually give it to other people and see if it also validates on a, on a bigger scale. So we kind of got a, a few other teachers, talked to them, invited them to look at it. We posted it um, as a comment on Facebook. And that's where our marketing happened. That that was all our marketing for years. It's really putting it one comment on a Facebook post. People started looking at it, talking within that tribe because teachers are organized highly 
tribally, like in a very big group of people that are all interconnected. They all follow the same thought leaders. They all have the same idea. It's, it's essentially like developers like separated by programming language. Right? You have all these Ruby yeah, people, yeah. you have all these PHP people, and they fight it out. But inside their groups, they're super tribal. Everybody knows who wrote the language. They all follow them on Twitter. Just look at Rails, right? Like Just these kind of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was even more true in the teacher space, because all these online English teachers, they were super well connected, like even more than developers. They all knew each other, even though it was like thousands of people. They talked to each other in Facebook groups, like in centrally located Facebook groups. Facebook groups, they would share links to cool things. They would share links to interesting products they used to make their lives easier. Marketing was a breeze because people would do it for us. So that was our initial validation after Danielle had actually used the product for a couple of days and figured out it was super useful to her. We just pushed it out and then we saw that people were actually starting to use it. Sounds like we all need a Danielle in our life. It certainly is easier if, if your co-founder <laughs> just lives in your apartment already. Yeah, that's that's one of the things, right? It's, it's super hard to, um, as a developer, because I've been doing this a couple times in the past and failed horribly, is to come up with a product idea, which is always the wrong first thing to do, I guess. But that's what I knew, right? Oh, yeah, I have this cool idea about this infrastructure product for deployment, because that's what I need. And that's what I know. And then you see that no developer ever wants to spend money on tools and it's super hard to to get people to see the value of a product that has like marginal value that only gives you this little bit of extra so i always failed horribly with these kind of products myself because i didn't have somebody who could look at it through a non-developer lens like that was that was mm -hmm. one of these things danielle is like i said an opera singer and she, she's had her own like consulting stuff on the side. Um, she, she knows how to do business and to do marketing, which I didn't. And having her bring, bring the product, the idea, and the audience with her made this very easy, which is why I think co-founders in general, very good idea. All the products <laughs> and, and startups that I've built in the past, and I know this is, again, anecdotal, the ones that survived were the ones with co-founders. There were also some that didn't survive that were with co-founders. So it's not a guarantee, but everything I tried alone, maybe I'm just bad, but it's, it's everything I tried alone <laughs> just failed horribly, right? So it's always nice yeah. to have somebody to kind of bounce ideas off. You don't dig yourself in too much yeah, if somebody yeah. tells you, no, this is not right. Well, also I can see like with Danielle, like she kind of allowed you to see this opportunity because she's, you know, in a different space. Like a lot of us, you know, bootstrappers, indie hackers were, you know, usually software developers. We're all kind of in that world mm -hmm. and there's only so many problems in that world or so many new problems that come up where, you know, there's lots of other problems out there that other people are experiencing that we probably don't even see because yeah. it's, you know, it's not, we don't come against them in our life. So... Yeah, and, and we that's also one of these problems. I, I don't want to be too cliche, but if we sit at home all day and build things, then we don't meet people outside. Like, at, at least for me, I've, I've, I've had phases in my life where I wouldn't leave the apartment for a week because I was so busy engineering that I just didn't do anything else. It's kind of hard to see other people's real-world problems if the real world is your confined space that you have like seven monitors in and do all this important stuff, right? It's kind of <laughs> you're limiting yourself just because you're not exposed to other people um, and their real problems. And I think that's that's what I said earlier. It's nice to talk to your family and friends 
and just acquaintances and try to see what they complain about. It's always interesting to hear what people who have a different kind of job than ours complain about, because then there are these moments, and I've had this multiple times, even co-founded a company with a, with a friend that was living, was working in a completely different space because um, she was complaining about something that I could automate within minutes, but she would need weeks to do manually. That's the kind of transfer of knowledge that just hasn't happened in certain spaces. Like the, the, I've, I've uh, family members that are farmers. If you talk to them about doing stuff that we do with a in a Google Sheet or that that we do just like by building a small script and automating, sending emails, inventory, these kind of things, takes them ages because they don't have automated systems in place. Yeah, but yeah. as engineers, we do automated systems mm -hmm. all the time. So by being able to just transfer this little knowledge, you can find so many opportunities to solve people's problems. Of course, you then need to make them aware that they actually have a problem because they're used to dealing with things the way they've been dealing with them for years. But that's mm -hmm. that's the job of marketing, I guess, and sales. So that looking outside your box, like quite literally looking outside your room and looking outside your office or your computer, which is another box, often can lead to these kind of chance encounters where your transferable knowledge, the skills you have, the understanding of how things could be, they, they, they don't exist in other industries. And you could just sort of get what's in there and look at things and see, oh, this is automatable. This can be done in a, in a SaaS. This can be a tool. This can be an app. Like you see this all the time. You just really need to go there. Yeah, that makes yeah. that makes sense. Um, so maybe following that path again, like you had validation. Um, next thing, obviously, you need to put a price tag on that. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. So how did you come up with that? Yeah, sorry for derailing from your question. I just like uh, follow my trains of thoughts wherever they lead me. No, no, me. that's all right. <laughs> um, pricing was a thing um, that we thought a lot about and then we chose not to think a lot about anymore. Um, we, I, I've, been, I've been reading quite a bit before we founded the business. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts, a lot of Indie Hackers podcasts and a lot of um, other startup podcasts uh, before I even started the business with Danielle. Because I used to commute from Berlin to Hamburg every single day, well, three days a week. And if you're not mm -hmm. a German, this is two hours there and two hours back. <laughs> so doing this for three times a week is essentially 12 hours of sitting in a train because we have fancy trains with no Wi-Fi because we have really unfancy connectivity between cities here in this in this beautiful country. So yeah, Germany is the worst when it comes to that. Like it's great in the cities, but if you are between cities, you have zero connectivity. That meant I could only do, do two things, read or listen to podcasts. And I did both. Well, I could also sleep, but you know, kind of kind of pointless, boring after a while. So I was reading a lot about pricing. I was reading a lot uh, about like how you should kind of always price more right that's the one thing like up your prices it's what everybody says in the community and everybody tells you that in the podcast and we just thought hmm is this a, an advice you can even generalize and it's really not because if you look at our customer base these are online teachers and online teachers are either full-time online teachers so that's their only job and they make i guess like 20 bucks an hour or that's their second or third job and if you have people who have a second or third job they're really in the price sensitive category, right? Because they work because they yeah. have to, not because they love online teaching at three o'clock in the morning because in China, <laughs> that's when kids are home from school. That's not what people do for a living, at least not all of them really love to do. So we priced it at 10 bucks a month. Initially, we even priced it at five bucks a month. That's what we 
put into the the first the first couple of weeks was five bucks a month and ten bucks a month could pick both plans one was limited the other one was pretty much unlimited when it comes to like the amount of students you can have in your system the amounts of feedback you can create we pretty quickly decided that five bucks a month was not worth it because um like, like always the lower price gets you these interesting people that um are really entitled really think that you they pay you five bucks a month you so you better be there like 10 hours a day to help them and uh the, also the the kinds of people that would like uh yeah they, they would stop subscribing fairly quickly they would complain a lot they would charge back the charges we had on our credit cards and oh yeah these kind of things so we stopped that plan fairly fairly fast and then it was 10 bucks a month for a year and then we decided well if everybody says increase your prices we should do that too <laughs> and we increased it uh, increased it to, to 15 bucks a month so a 50 percent price increase um kind of softened the blow by implementing a referral system at the same time which if people used it got them back to the 10 bucks a month kind of pricing oh, yeah that that worked well then we increased growth at that point we didn't lose a, a single dollar because people just continued to subscribe there was this nice little lead up in the last month before because we said if you subscribe um in december 2019 um or no 2018 before yeah. the change goes live in january you can still get the old price so we had this nice little spike between christmas and new year's um that was kind of cool uh, and lots of yearly subscriptions because people wanted to keep their yearly kind of uh, <laughs> discount. So that, that always works. But we really picked the number out of the hat by random chance. We thought, like, how much do people pay for Netflix? Let's turn this, turn this up a bit and see if people pay for it. Because it's super hard for an audience where you know they don't have much money to find a good price point that will not annoy anyone. Because it will always annoy somebody. Or somebody will always be upset that, oh, no, 10 bucks a month. What is this? This is a glorified Excel sheet. Well, yeah, it is. <laughs> and you will pay for it, please. So, and some people just didn't <laughs> see the, the value immediately. All, all of our customers obviously at some point understood that this was much more valuable than just like working in Excel. But to some people, anything that costs money is too much money. And when I understood that these were not our audience, it was much easier to run the business. Because you can always try to sell to everybody then you're just going to be a bottom feeder and you try to reduce prices as much as you can. But if you understand that you sell to the people who want their problem solved and are willing to pay for it, then it's a totally different perspective. And that's the one we took. That's also why we reduced uh, um, the options that people had to just a 10 bucks a month plan and a yearly version of that for 110. And that was all we had for a year. And it worked pretty well for us. That sounds like you figured out the, the best situation for you. Like, yeah, I mean, I think you can't just uh raise prices and kind of just oh that's what everyone says mm -hmm. um i think it makes sense like what you did like you know really figuring out understanding your audience what they need what makes sense for them um i think maybe some of the reason why we hear that a lot in the bootstrapping communities is just that i, th I feel like most uh most of, of the businesses are serving other businesses mm -hmm. that probably have like you know, a decent amount of money. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and right. so then, you know, you know, businesses aren't spending their own money typically, unless it, you know, it's just the founder or whatever. Um, they're spending the business's money. Yeah, so it's easier for them to, to pay more for it. 
Um, That's a very but, uh, important yeah. point. I think like the whole B2B perspective, yeah, of course you can increase your prices in B2B. If the budget isn't filled up yet, then you, yeah, people will pay you for it. They don't care if it's 300 bucks a month or 400 if they have a $4,000 right. budget. But yeah, and, and that's the thing Like we were not in B2B, we were also not in B2C because the people we sold to, they were their own little businesses. So it was a B2BC market, right? Where you were selling to, essentially, if you're selling yeah, yeah. to freelancers or if you're selling to Uber drivers or something, you're kind of in between. So that's where we were. So they had a budget. They just didn't know it yet. And that was kind of hard because these teachers obviously were willing to spend 10 bucks a month to save um, hours and every hour you save is an hour you can make more money in an hour more to teach right so to some and you, and you make 25 bucks an hour so teaching half an hour which is one lesson and this was always like half an hour lessons in, in our case already pays for the product so from a business perspective makes perfect sense right but yeah if you are the person that has to budget from your personal account it suddenly turns into something else and i think that's very important like the kind of market you sell to like you cannot outprice Netflix on a video subscription for a B2C market. If you try that, then people will say, no, Netflix is better, they are cheaper. It's just the competition that you have, right? But in a B2B market, right. you can price as much as you want. I want to put a counterpoint here, though, because um, pricing is also a psychological thing on the founder level. And recently, I've been I've been thinking about my own reasons why I actually sold the company and why Danielle and I sold. And we, at the end, um, when we were two years in, there was so much value in our business, but it was kind of the only wealth we had, right? It's a very non-distributed wealth because we here we had this, this uh, business that was, that was making mid-level um, like 600 something thousand a year in ARR, which is a lot of value um, it turns out when we sold, it was a lot of value um, to somebody else. But that's the only thing you have. We didn't have much in savings. We didn't have much in real estate. So that was the thing. That was our wealth all tied up in this business. So you don't make risky choices anymore because we could have increased our prices not to 15, but to 25 or to 40 and see what happens. Just numerically, it may have played out, right? Maybe we would have lost 50% of our subscribers but we would have made four times the money. That could have happened. Yeah, yeah. But we never would have done this because we were we were having a good thing and we're not going to ruin it. We're not going <laughs> to risk this just because, um, well, don't want to call out Patrick, but Patrick Campbell says, do, do that, right? Just increase your prices. I, I didn't want to feel just like cargo culting the whole SaaS pricing thing risking our business so that was a very very strong deterrent for us to ever play with our prices just because that was the one pony we had and it was leading in the race and we were not gonna risk that no that sounds pretty reasonable though i mean that I, that's pretty understandable <laughs> no but the thing is now i'm in, in, in this situation that i'm now in, um, if i were to, to do another business like this i would have no trouble no trouble raising prices <laughs> and playing with this because i'm financially secure totally different situation like now that my, that my livelihood is not threatened by increasing the prices, of course, it's just another thing. It's like building another feature, removing another feature, increasing prices, or adding a new plan. It turns from this danger into just another thing you do in a business. 
and that's important. Yeah, that's a little bit like it's a little bit like playing poker, and you already you like you're going to the table with a huge bankroll, and you know that you can lose yeah. it all and still have financial security in a way. And and the thing is, it's a much better choice when it comes to the business because obviously, if you do the experiment and it works, then all of a sudden your MRR has tripled. If it doesn't, yeah, well, you right. go back to the normal prices and nothing is lost, but there might be some loss in there and you just don't want to risk it, which is why, among other reasons, we sold the business to diversify, to take this kind of value and spread it out. So that is, yeah, if you can't do this from the beginning, you really have to understand that your psychology is going to keep you from doing this kind of stuff or could at least it did in my case. That's interesting. And this is kind of something I'm interested in. You know, once you have a valid product and you know it's working things are going well is there like was there a need for you to continually validate it or continue to get feedback um to improve or is that like once you had that good thing you know you just kind of let it go or yeah what do you think about that oh, it's uh, very interesting i've i've written a, a blog post on that particular topic just this week which is going to be released within the next 24 hours um it's, <laughs> oh. it's re really convenient yeah and on, on friday the uh, 28th um it is still extremely important to validate not just the product like you have to validate a lot of things in your business I feel the product is one of them. Obviously, does it still solve the problem you set out to solve? Does it still, is the problem still the important problem actually for the people? But you can continue solving a problem. Just turns out that nobody has that anymore. Still a problem for your business, right? So we were always in feedback loops with our customers. And the good thing was um, we had a lot of early adopters that came to our product quite early in the journey. And like the first couple hundred customers, there was a lot of them that stayed with us for the entirety of the business, which is great. And we had really low churn to begin with because teachers who once used the product would use it for the entirety of their career, which is great. Really, really good for us, I guess, and for the revenue that we had. But um, these people were constantly in contact with us. And whenever something happened in their industry or to the workflows that they had, they would talk to us and say, well, now we need to do this. Like the Chinese company wants us to do this now. And can you help us with that? And if it was part of our actual problem space, then we would help them solve that problem as well. Um, there was a lot of change that happened that didn't even involve our customers. Um, one of the one of the examples that, that I that I wrote about this week is Flash, Adobe Flash. They sunset Flash back in 2015. They announced that they will eventually phase it out because they didn't care about it anymore. HTML5 video was on the rise and people were just not using Flash anymore. So Adobe said, well, why would we support this? Let's end it. And then they put out a timeline. They wanted to end support for Flash by the end of 2020, which is five years in advance, which is great. But then Chrome, the Chromium team, needed to find their own timeline to phase it out of the browser because obviously you cannot support a unsupported plugin anymore. So they needed to get it out of Chrome before the end of 2020. So they had their own timeline. So now in, in 2019, 2019, they switched off the default setting or they turned the default setting for Flash being active in the browser from on by default to off to default. So all of a sudden, companies that relied on Flash to do the kind of things they were doing, the video, started noticing, oh, we have a couple months left to fix this, to find a new system, because Flash <laughs> is not going to be around. And the Chinese companies that were um, yeah, kind of hiring our teachers to teach their, through their portals, they had this. They were using a video um, service, some Chinese video streaming platform that used Flash as the base technology for the video stream. 
Like obviously <laughs> they could have just switched to a provider that used HTML5 and be fine. But the, for some reason they had like these long year contracts or whatever, it's, it's China, you never mm. really know. So they didn't. So what they did was the craziest thing from a developer's perspective. Instead of dealing with the fact that Flash is going to be phased out, they decided to freeze the browser version of the teachers that teach for them in time by wrapping their website into an Electron app and having people teach through the Electron app where they could control which Chrome version is in there forever. So essentially, <laughs> it's the weirdest thing. They decided to have this app that teachers now needed to teach through instead of teaching through the browser that would eventually phase out Flash. And because they had this app, they could control it and never phase out Flash. And that is how they solved it. I mean, that. You, <laughs> and, and, and the thing is, like, we had a browser extension in Chrome. That was really an important part of the whole workflow. And you cannot install browser <laughs> extensions into a, a, an Electron app, at least not easily. So now I needed to figure out how I can get my measly browser extension that essentially just put a button right in the classroom where people can click and that would open a tab to our product, really the most simple of browser extensions, how I could get that into this, this Electron app, which is almost impossible. It took me a couple of weeks to figure it out. But, so that was the kind of validation that needed to happen because not only do you need to react to your customers or your customers' um, employers or all these things, there's also technology change that you never expect to hit you in this kind of way. Yeah, so that, that, <laughs> yeah. that is... That's, yeah. that's a crazy story. <laughs> it is super crazy. And all of these schools have, have done this because for some reason they all use the same provider. Maybe that's also <laughs> a thing. Um, maybe they don't have too many over there that uh, have these kind of connections. I, I don't know. But uh, yeah, they, they all have teaching apps now. Luckily, I found a way to integrate with it. And I think that is worth uh, a technical podcast episode somewhere in some way because it's super weird. Um, but... If I hadn't found a way to do this, all of a sudden, one of the key selling points of Feedback Panda would not have existed anymore. And, right? Mm -hmm. Just <clears throat> gone. So was kind of the the way you continually, you know, interacted with your users, did it continue to be kind of through like the Facebook groups or were there other channels oh. that you used for talking to users? Yeah, we uh, initially, we, we went with um, User Engage, I think was the name. It's a... Um, Eastern European company, pretty much like Intercom. And then we went to Intercom. That's all we did. Like we, we put Intercom into our product because we wanted something that solved all our customer service problems at the same time. Because like during the existence of Feedback Panda, I mean, it still exists, right? But like the two years that we ran it, Danielle and I, we never hired any employee. So we did the customer support, all these things, just the two of us. And we had a couple thousand customers at the end. So we needed a system that would scale. Um, and would allow us to scale customer support to thousands of people. So Intercom went in and we had a chat through which people could reach out to us and talk to us. We kind of bundled it up with, in the backend and we put like IDs in there so we would know like who reaching out to us had which user ID in our system so we could reach out to them and ask them periodically about things and have like campaigns going to draw information from, from the crowd. But most, yeah. most of it was, was inbound. Most of the people having problems, it's always this, right? People write to you because they have a, a problem somewhere in the interface, you solve it for them, and then you have an opportunity because here's this person that is already willing to give you information, so you can hook into them and ask them for more. Yeah. Did you encounter any other problems? Mm -hmm. Or do you see Feedback Panda still solving your main, main most important problem? And you kind of start a conversation from there, and you, like, we built a templating, a text templating tool. 
So of course we also use text templating for these kind of conversations. So I would have like a three letter um, yeah, shortcut that would just put a whole block of, okay, now um, do you have another problem? Can we help you with this? This kind of com conversational templating that helped us a lot too. Just getting the conversation going and doing this in a time efficient manner was very important, but we constantly communicated every single day. I had like 10, 15 customer service conversations at the detriment of my development um, time because <laughs> it, because it's, it's all split out during the day and you never know when somebody has a problem, right? So yeah, yeah. this is 16 hours that you have time when you're not asleep and every one and a half hours somebody writes in and so you don't have any block of time to actually do important development work, which is problematic. So I should have hired, I learned that, I guess, but use that opportunity always to kind of pull more information in, and that worked really well. Nice. <clears throat> That's cool. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely interested about the communication with your users and understanding your users because that's kind of the problem I'm interested mm -hmm. in solving right now. But uh, yeah, that sounds like you had a a good workflow for how you how you solve that. And it's yeah, it's cool to see that you see that as an important to continually validate what you're doing and understand your customers as you go, even though even after you you know you kind of have a product that's working. Yeah, I think something like user engine would have been interesting for us at that point, to be honest, because we we didn't really have this this kind of input on a um, like quantitative level. Like we would talk to people and try to qualitatively find out what was going on, but it would have been very interesting to have people vote, for example, or just to have people kind of understand in in their own space what other people need. But we never really went there. It went well enough for us. I think there's there was a lot of potential um, cu customer communication that was not one on one. That would have, that would have been very interesting. Also fed by by more like actual data. And I think that's where you're going with your mm -hmm. product, right? To kind of take the data. Yeah, that's and the, kind of the plan. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love the idea because the whole thing that I've been doing was to just qualitatively try to figure out what is going on. Just really, is there something I don't know? But the, the quantitative mm -hmm. approach, like I know certain things, so which one is the most important? That we never had. And we had to do this internally. Like every cus uh, customer that would give us something that they wanted, we would write it down and at some point have a meeting and list them all and say, this is crap, this is amazing, this will never happen, this might happen. Kind of do this priori prioritization mm -hmm. kind of thing, which would be nice if the customers had at least a voice in that. Because just because mm -hmm. one person told us how do I know that it's not 40 people that had the same idea, but were afraid to talk to me, right? That, that, like, this kind of information was always lost. It was never quantitative. And that is very important if you want to make metric-based decisions. So I think what you're doing is very interesting um, and would definitely be interesting Thanks, yeah. in, in, a, in a community like ours as well. Because, and, and I think that's important because it was a tribe. People share information. That's why our referral system took off. To a point where I think 40% of new signups came through a referral, which was kind of crazy. But people share this yeah. kind of stuff. So if you make it available to them, they will use it. I'm just I'm just thinking, like, if I could give my customer a link to have other customers and other people that are not yet customers vote on features, that'd be kind of cool. And I'm just thinking about this, like, mm -hmm. um, when it comes to a product that interacts with them on that level. Yeah. So um, kind of going back, I know in, in the beginning we talked a little bit about you starting to kind of move into this new thing of teaching. Um, what are 
and we talked a bit about this before what are mm-hmm. kind of your goals with this around this ah uh, yeah well um i, I kind of <laughs> the more i hear the word teaching it kind of feels like i know what i'm saying <laughs> so there's the imposter syndrome again but um i what, what i want to do is share as much as i've learned with as many founders and i guess wannapreneurs i think is the word as possible because that is where i got all my information initially um before i actually founded the business was from podcasts was from blogs from from articles that people wrote from guides that people wrote there's a lot of very interesting guides on bootstrapping and startups and i wrote my own which is the condensed uh, kind of learnings that i had um during both feedback panda and all the startups that i've been part of before both the failed ones and the ones that are still kind of creeping and crawling around on, on their bellies, if that's the phrase. Um, so I, I want to write more. I want to put more of the content that is still in my mind and not on paper yet um, out there. I decided at some point over the, the last couple of months that the guide that I was writing is a good foundation for an actual book that I now decided to actually write. And um, nice. yeah, yeah. It's, 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 the, the guide is called Zero to Sold, and that will also be the, the title of the yeah. book, I assume. And I intend to have that done by MicroConf this year in, in 2020. So that, that is my new deadline that I now, oh, sweet. now commit to here on this podcast. <laughs> see, MicroConf, is that, that going to be in the spring or fall? I forget. It's in, in April. See, I think the... So you don't have a ton of time. I do not, but I've also been writing quite a bit. <laughs> the thing is, like, um, I, it usually takes me like three or four hours to write an article, and I see that I have forty or fifty articles left to write. So that that is like a, a month of focused work. So it's two months of my kind of work. So um, I'll, I guess I'll be done like uh, early early April. It's it's currently like it's always gonna be an ebook first because I know that most founders uh, either like to read on their computers or have a Kindle or prefer ebooks for you know many reasons. Probably gonna be a paperback book as well, but don't care for that. I just want to have it done, right? Um, I don't. Mm-hmm. That, that's the whole thing about my teaching, if you can call it like that. It's more like. My sharing, I guess, uh, so how I perceive it. I don't necessarily want to monetize it just for the sake of monetizing it. I know that there's an opportunity for me to like find support in the community by having people buy what I write about. But I think I also still want to release articles to my blog for free. I want to do the podcast for free. I want to put the newsletter out for free because I feel like I received so much from people like you sharing their story from people who've done it, from people that were doing it, and from people who were yet to do it. And just that kind of stuff I want to do myself. So the book is the plan, yeah. and, and anything else is just going to continue me uh, putting out content every single week. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, it sounds like you have so much information and knowledge shoved in your brain. You're like, I just got to get this out. It's, it's the weirdest <laughs> thing. If you work 24-7 that's for awesome. two years, you just don't get to think. Or you don't get to write. You don't even get to speak because there's always something going on. I tried writing while I was still working on Feedback Panda. It took me two weeks to write like half an article. Just didn't happen. Always interruptions. Always business. Always somebody who needed to cancel their subscription but didn't find the button. That kind of stuff, right? It's just the, these these little things. They keep you from being in the flow. And now I have a lot of flow. I have a lot of time. 
I have a lot of days to fill with stuff. I've been recording like the the episodes, the catch up episodes of my podcast for the last yeah, two weeks, like three or four every single day, just because I had the the mental capacity and space and and time to do it. Well, that's awesome. We look forward to your book book coming out, and yeah, we definitely appreciate all the stuff that you're you're putting out. It's it's I've I've definitely found it useful. So thanks. Thanks so much. Yeah, definitely. Um, Let's see, Ben. Do we have any? Did you have any other last questions? Well, I would have some questions to the Chinese companies locking their flash player into an electron app, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's just say I, I don't it, think it, anybody. It involves another electron app starting the electron app and then injecting JavaScript. I mean, yeah, but yeah, there's te- technical. There's so much interesting stuff if you build. Uh, software right like you guys know that there's there's just every day there's a new challenge there's always something interesting to build there's always this weird solution that nobody else has yet figured out to this one specific problem (laughs) i know i know there's a lot of stuff to talk about i I mean you have to give them some credit for creativity yeah absolutely (laughs) yeah but apart from that i think uh we could wrap, wrap this up and um i guess we'll put all the links in the show notes you should check out thebootstrapfoundry.com. And Arvid, thanks for being on the podcast. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks so much, Arvid. All right, we will talk to you later, listeners. Goodbye. See you next week.